You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. In our never-ending quest to understand the Twilight Zone, to define the Twilight Zone, with every episode there is a certain amount of conversation about whether it fits into the Twilight Zone-shaped hole that we've all created for the show in our minds. An episode about aliens, sure, that's the Twilight Zone. Time travel, absolutely. But tonight we'll discover an episode that may just make us think again about what fits into this show. But to start out at least, everything seems present and correct. What could be more Twilight Zone than a joyful slice of Americana? Beautiful southern bells, strapping handsome farmers and a barn dance, a celebration of the upcoming union of two people who are typical of those two groups. Now that everybody's here, I'm proud to bid you welcome. Now I want everybody to dance until you wear out the fiddler. (laughs) And I want everybody to eat until you had to let out your belts to the last notch. (laughs) The land was good to me this year. The good Lord blessed it with rain when rain was needed and a kindly son to follow. And this barn is heavy with the yield of it. Amen. But that's just one of the reasons we're celebrating here tonight. A decent, good and true man has come to me and asked for the hand of my daughter, Elwyn. And she has my endearing love and my blessing to marry Billy Ben Turner. A beautiful location and two seemingly good people desperately in love with each other. What could possibly go wrong? Well, let's find out when we meet Jess Bell. There was Ellie Glover, dark was Jess Bell. Both they loved the same man. And both they love him well. The Twilight Zone has existed in many lands in many times. It has its roots in history and something that happened long, long ago and got told about and handed down from one generation of folk to the other. In the telling, the story gets added to and embroidered on so that what might have happened in the time of the Druids is told as if it took place yesterday in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Such stories are best told by an elderly grandfather on a cold winter's night by the fireside in the southern hills of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 14, 1963. Written by Earl Hamner Jr. and directed by Buzz Kulik. Now I will often say at the beginning of an episode that maybe there isn't much trivia for it, 
especially recently with some of these season 4 ones. But then there is always the bios of the actors to fall back on, or the writer and director even. But in this case, the main players both behind the camera and in front of it have all been featured in the Twilight Zone before, which means I've probably done their bios before. Now our writer Earl Hamner is still fairly early on in his Twilight Zone writing career. Unlike Matheson and Beaumont, his time on the show was more weighted towards the end of it, the last two seasons, but he did have a strong start with The Hunt, and an episode that has probably grown in my estimation since I covered it, A Piano in the House. In his book Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, Stuart Stanyard asked Elhamner, so if your tombstone will refer to the Waltons as one of the most memorable pieces as it were, what is your favourite thing you've ever written? And Elhamner replied, Maybe if the Waltons is first on my tombstone, right under it, we can put the Twilight Zone. Because those were original pieces. Each one that I did, it was not an adaptation. It was totally my work. It was done when I was a much younger writer. Maybe more apt to be a little energetic. A little more in possession of the word. A little more in charge of my talent as a writer during those years which was in the 1950s, so I'm quite proud of the Twilight Zone. And this is quite an interesting interview with Hamner in this book, I'm quite sorry that I never got to talk to him myself while he was still alive. And Stanyard also asks him, do you think that Rod used the show as a way to address ongoing social issues, disguise them in fiction, so it would be more palatable for both the audience and the network? And Earl Hamner responded, I think Rod was very clever in the way he turned issues into entertainment, but they were not just social issues. I think he was also concerned with all aspects of life. He wrote scripts about death, people dealing with death. He wrote scripts about people who like to read, but also he strongly made statements about social injustice. And he was particularly fond of bringing the Nazis to their knees and often these scripts would have anti-Nazi flavour, and bless him for doing that, and I wish he was still here, because I don't think Nazism is quite dead, as we would like to see it. So it has been a while since we've actually seen an Earl Hamner penned episode, and in the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickery documents how Hamner came to write this one. And Hamner says, Herb Hirschman called me on a Friday, and he said, I've just had a script knocked out from under me, we can't do it, by a week from today I need an hour long script, I know you are interested in folklore and backwards type stories, and I just have the feeling that maybe you could have a script for me in a week. I said, Herb, it usually takes me a week to think of an idea, I have to scratch my head and get drunk and sleep and wrestle and walk before that kind of idea will come. He said, well think about it until Monday and call me on Monday. So on Monday I called and said Herb, I do have an idea and I outlined it briefly and it was Jess Bell. He said can you have it to me by Friday 
I said, well, that will mean that I'll have to write an act a day, and I also want to write a folk song to go along with it. And I could hear the hopelessness in his voice. But he said, we'll go ahead and try it. So I did, and I delivered it that Friday, having written one act each day, and it was one of those cases where I really fell in love with the script. Now normally at this point I would talk about the opening narration and in season 4 so far, I haven't really had a lot to say about some of them, but this is one that I do have a lot to say about, but I'm actually going to save my thoughts on it until near to the end, because it is wrapped up in my overall thoughts about the episode. But what I would like to do is to step back a little bit to a moment before Rod Sailing's opener narration, where the party is in full swing, but Jess Bell played by Anne Francis leaves, clearly not liking what is going on, and Elwyn Glover played by Laura Devon tells her betrothed Billy Ben to go after her. And I think this speaks to the decency of the character of Elwyn because she must clearly know something must have happened in the past between Billy Ben and Jess Bell, but she sends him after her anyway, and, and it's something that would absolutely be uncomfortable to do, sending your fiancé after his ex-lover. But there's a decency and a purity to Ellie Glover, and it's an act of trust in him and a gesture of goodwill to Jess Bell. This is a happy occasion and she genuinely just wants everybody to be happy. But when Billy Ben catches up to Jess Bell, she makes this speech. Jess Bell? Don't you come near me. I thought you might want to wish us well, Jess. You'll have nothing from me. No need for you to take on so. What you want me to do? Run in there, throw my arms around her, tell her how glad I am? Jess, I'm sorry. Remember the night we clung together in the sweet night grass? Top of Eagle Rock Mountain? The moonlight made us see a silver mist on the fog below. I remember. And the day we ran through the Scotch broom field, and the sun was blazing hot, and we fell together, and you touched me? And the fire in me burned as hot as the white sun. The fire's turned to ashes now, Jess. It still burns here. But it's different with Elwyn and me. Pretty clothes in her daddy's land. Is that the difference, Billy Ben? No. No, that's not the difference. I, I love her in a, a quiet way. You know, it... I don't want to hear. To my ears, this is kind of a tragic, angst-ridden southern poetry, written beautifully by Earl Hamner and delivered perfectly by Anne Francis. And it also ushers in one of the main aspects of the episode for me. I can't help but think about the language that she uses here. You touched me, and the fire in me burned hot as the white sun. So lines like this must have been quite risque for the time. This isn't the sanitized speech of old Hollywood, where people fall in love at the drop of a hat just because they fall in love. This is the speech of passion, of lust. Its sexuality is bubbling under the surface. 
This moment leaves us in no doubt that what they had together, however briefly, was unbridled carnal desire for each other, a desire that has left her still thirsty for him, but he's now with Elwyn, who he says he loves in a quiet way. And again, I love that use of language by Hamner because it says so much. Ellie is the woman that he will make his home with, have his children with, and go to church with. But Jess Bell, Jess Bell was the one he couldn't take his hands off. And this isn't the only moment that makes me think that this could be the most sexually charged Twilight Zone of them all. Granny Hart? Well, what you bothering an old woman for this time of night? I gotta talk to you. Well, sit down. So Jess Bell comes to see Granny Hart, and before she comes into the house, we see Granny hunched over her cauldron, with her hair over her face, and a dark black cloak around her, the very picture of what many people consider a witch to be, at least in the movies. But then when Jess Bell knocks, she stands up straight and drops the cloak, and the transformation is immediate and wonderful, such a simple thing but sold to perfection by the actress Jeanette Nolan. She goes from this chanting crone to this beautiful mature woman with a sparkle in her eye. Now amazingly we have seen Jeanette Nolan before in Earl Hamner's first Twilight Zone, The Hunt, where she played the old woman Rachel Simpson and she was clearly playing older in that episode because by this point she's only really in her early 50s. But it's a testament to what a chameleon she was and I have to say, she is my favourite thing about this episode. And again, I think there are undercurrents of sexuality here. Nolan is somewhat of a seductress. And I was tempted to describe her as a young woman in an older woman's body, but that's probably disrespecting what a beautiful woman Nolan is, and I think it's more accurate to say that she is unencumbered by her apparent age. In reality, she just doesn't live by the same set of rules and, and expectations as everybody else. The ones that suggest a lady of her years should be a genteel, sexless geriatric. But is she evil? I would say for the most part that she lives by her own rules and in her own way, and that doesn't necessarily make her evil. But what complicates things is that she does seem to have some foresight that what she gives to Jess Bell won't end well for her, and that Jess isn't really fully aware of this. But then you could argue that she's just a facilitator and that by asking for this, that Jess Bell has really stepped into the realms of someone breaking the cosmic rules. 
She is the one who has put herself in this position. Now through her conversations with Granny Hart, we do get the impression that either Billy Ben was just using Jess Bell for sex, or that there was a disconnect between them about what they had was. He was mine for a while. Came sneaking off at night, kept quiet what went on between him and me. Never took me any place for the world to know. He made me promises. He made him when his face was hot as blood. Forgot him as soon as he was ten feet from my door. Honey, you don't know much about men, do you? Only him. What man? Billy Ben Turner. Oh, he's a pretty one. With nice, big, strong arms to hold a girl. But these are human things, human matters, that humans have their own way of dealing with. So irrespective of any of this, Jess Bell is trying to make a gain for herself by unnatural means, depriving Elwyn of her future husband and essentially enslaving Billy Ben. Now the who's right and who's wrong of this whole thing is certainly a conversation that could go on and on, but I'll come back to that later on. But in the here and now, I think Granny Hart is a wonderfully written character and their performance is a masterclass by Nolan. So Granny agrees to give Jess Bell a potion that will get her what she wants, and it does get her what she wants. She walks into Billy Ben and Elwyn's engagement party, and Billy Ben is immediately under her spell. But as Granny said, there is a cost. By day she knew a woman's form, by night a witch's spell, for love of Billy Turner, a curse. Was just well, I didn't mean to frighten you. Hold out your hand. I got something for you. Ellie's ring. Just Bell's ring. Belongs to the one I love, and the one I love is you. Every minute I'm away from you is a suffering and a torment. Suffering and torment? You know what suffering and torment means? Sure. It's having a girl that your heart's craving and have her keep putting the wedding day off. All kinds of torment in the world, I reckon. What would you know of torment, girl? It's the torment comes from buying something, finding out the price is dear. Well, what did you buy that cost so dear? Something I love. So when the clock strikes midnight, Jess Bell transforms into a leopard. Now I'll be honest, a bat, maybe. A black cat, sure. A big black cat, even. A panther, absolutely. But in the rural south, a leopard? I wasn't too sure about this one, and I did get the feeling that this might be where the episode jumped the shark. But there is a bit of a story behind this, if you are to believe Wikipedia. Now, I can't find what this might be based on, so... Believe it if you will, but it says, Hamner stated that Jess Bell's original animal incarnation was a tiger, but Herbert Hirschman told him at the time that tigers provided by animal trainers were too hard to work with. Hamner recalled Hirschman phoning him and complaining, I'm up to my arse in tigers and none of them can act. 
so it was changed to a leopard. The original intention was to have a black leopard to match Jess Bell's black hair, but none were available, so Hirschman had to settle on a spotted leopard. Director Buzz Kulik recalled that the leopard also proved very difficult, partly because it had been drugged, and that despite the extensive precautions taken, including the construction of a camera cage, it proved extremely hard to get the leopard to do anything at all, and that it tended to fall asleep during shooting. So while I can't find the source to that, I think that judging by the leopard's docile behaviour, this seems to be pretty feasible. Now the morning after Jess Bell's transformation, she's in the field, and before Billy Ben approaches her, she is standing looking very troubled, and I think Anne Francis does a wonderful job here of, of really letting what's going on inside show on her face. She looks like she's lost something, she looks like she's changed, and we'll talk a bit more about her character soon, but in the meantime, she goes back to Granny Hart for some answers. Didn't you hear me knocking? I never let trouble in the door if I can help it. How you know I'm trouble? What child? There ain't much I don't know. Well, then if you know so much, maybe you can help me. Well, I already helped you once. You want to change your mind that you got what you wanted? I haven't got what I want. Oh, don't tell me you haven't got the love of Billy Ben Turner. I got his love all right. But I can't take it for fear he'd find the price I paid for it. I try to find pity for him and for me, but I can't. It's like my heart's been cut out and stone put where the heart was. Well, that ain't your heart, honey. What then? Oh, there's lots of names for it. Some folks call it soul. That was in the bargain, too. Oh, that's always in the bargain if you barter with witches. I am really enjoying this dialogue. In the same way as Sailings is poetry at times, this has a beautiful rhythm and poetry to it too. And it's interesting the way that Granny says your soul is always in the bargain when you barter. And then she pauses for a moment and then says, with witches. Now I'm not really sure that Hamner meant any more meaning in it than what's there. Was it Nolan who put that pause in just for dramatic effect, I don't know, but I almost think that he didn't really need to add with witches at the end of that sentence. Because bartering or trading is a great ethical test for anything. What are you trying to buy and what are the consequences of buying that thing? Your soul is always up for trade here. But I guess what Hamner is saying is that if you are trading with someone you know to be potentially problematic ethically, then what do you expect? And in the Twilight Zone companion he says about Jess Bell, basically all she wanted was to love someone. But it goes back to Faust, if you sell your soul, forget it. Oh stay now Jess, I got a craving to be with you every minute. Let go of me Billy. I never knew a man could have such a love as I hold for you. There's no peace from it. It burns night and day. I've got a terrible yearning. So the ethics around a love potion 
are really quite interesting. Can a love potion or love spell ever be anything other than unethical? Because if the purpose of the spell is to make a person have feelings for you, which they might not have already had, then you are in a sense enslaving them. And we see this particularly vividly in the episode The Chaser. And I guess what really puts it in perspective is we wouldn't accept someone drugging another person to make them more receptive sexually. So why would we accept it with a spell? Now I have known some witches in my time and I've found them to be fascinating and lovely people because there is the witches of the movies and pop culture and then there are the witches and Wiccans in real life. Now that probably covers a range of different kind of disciplines or whatever you want to call it and I don't understand everything about it. In fact I understand very little but it is something that I find endlessly fascinating. So I was interested to find out what an actual Wiccan or witch, what they would think of the ethical aspect of making a love spell. And on the witchcraft website called Wishbonics, they tackle this very subject. And it says some Wiccan practitioners make use of Wiccan love spells. Others outright refuse all forms of love magic. The reason is that Wiccans follow the Wiccan read, and it clearly states, and ye harm none, do what ye will. It is still up to debate how this applies to love spells. That's why it differs from coven to coven and practitioner how love magic is performed and what is considered acceptable practice and what is not within the Wiccan path. Typically Wiccan witches believe in threefold law while performing magic. The threefold law states that every action taken by us can return to us threefold. With many witches and spellcasters being in possession of such huge amounts of power, it is just natural that many people question the ethics of such magical undertakings. If you are not a Wiccan, this may not apply to you, but Wiccans need to make sure that no harm is done. So it's a long and fascinating read, and I won't go into it further, but clearly ethics is a big part of this episode in many ways, and I will come back to that in a little bit too. Really, Ben? Jess, I've been out of my mind. I searched this whole county over for you. Cursed myself every step of the way for upsetting you the way I did today. But Jess, you held cat where you been. I went away to think. And did you think of me? You were all I thought about. And did you think of me with love? Yes, Billy. Jess, I won't crowd you on the wedding day again. Now, whatever's been troubling you, you don't even have to tell me. Now, both of our lead actors have been in the Twilight Zone before, and Francis was, of course, in the After Hours, and James Best was in The Grave, and The Last Rites of Jeff Myrtlebank. So I don't tend to double up on bios if I've done bios on these people before, but I think it's really worth mentioning what a great chemistry these two have in this episode. They're both very beautiful, good-looking people in a very natural way, 
and they're both in their early to mid 30s at this point so they're at that point where they're not kids anymore but they still have a glow of youth about them but with enough maturity to look like they have lived some and what's great about how they work together is that you believe that they have history together even in this fantastical setting what they have for each other seems real the weight of the time before we see them on screen still weighs on them now in a very real way and I think both of their performances here are exceptional and Frances' transformation from this hurt woman at the beginning to the woman who's made a bad choice that she now has to carry the weight of to the full-on hellcat is pitched so well but it's this middle section where she's between the two extremes that I like the most it's as if she knows she's done wrong but she's stuck here now she's on this track and the burden weighs heavily on her and she knows that Billy Ben's love for her is false but just look at this scene where she's waiting for him in the dark and there's this moment where he says to her did you think of me with love and she says yes Billy and the smile on her face is so genuine and broad that it goes beyond all vanity it's not an engineered smile it's the smile of someone who doesn't care that it stretches all the way across their face because it's a smile of genuine love and James Best is equally as compelling in his own way because at the beginning he is the man who maybe does have some guilt for how he treated Jess Bell back in the day but either through maturity or love or maturity brought on by love he's now a different person than he used to be he doesn't want anyone to hurt and then he has this midsection where he is the lovesick slave but then later on he has to rise to the challenge of what to do about this so both of the characters have these journeys and they play them beautifully but even with the backdrop of all this craziness and witchcraft and leopards it's the truth of it the truth of this relationship that really gets me the fact that they can seem so real in this story and Earl Hamner was very happy with what they did in Stuart Stanyard's book Stanyard asks him you've mentioned that sometimes you felt actors haven't been able to capture the southern spirit of the characters but these two seem to be right on the mark and Hamner replies they were absolutely wonderful and I don't know that Anne or Jim had ever been in the south it's been a recurring problem with me when I turned in my script for the homecoming I wrote a two-page description of how to obtain southern speech but again you see I'm outrageously demanding of the people I work with and in unlocking the door to a television classic James Best says I did three of those Twilight Zones my favorite was probably the Jeff Mertelbank episode but I liked the one I did with Anne Francis we kissed a lot for one scene but that was acting of course most of the episode as I recall was filmed at the studio I recall teaching one of the actresses maybe it was Laura Devon how to speak a southern drawl so she would blend in with the country folk so Stanyard's book does particularly serve this episode well and Anne Francis is asked about the difference between doing the half hour episode and an hour long and she says you can do a lot more developing of the characters in an hour 
However, the after hours was basically one's theme, a haunted woman finally facing reality. This one, we were able to indulge more in different characters, like Jeanette Nolan as the witch was wonderful, and she had her great scenes, and Jimmy as the innocent young man who was tormented really with these two women, the darkness of Jess Bell, and the spell of Jess Bell, and the other woman, the sweet woman, that really should be his love. But every time Jess Bell was around, her spirit invaded him. There was more time to play with these emotions and characters, and to sit back and see how all of them were tormented in their own way, except for the witch. I told Earl I want to play the witch in his musical version, and he said no, I want you to do Jess Bell, but I'd think it would be such fun to play the witch. So I'm not sure whether that musical version ever saw the light of day, but you can see how the lyrical nature, especially with the music that El Hamner wrote for it, would possibly fit in with the musical. But after this scene where Billy Ben and Jess Bell talk in the house, and then Jess Bell runs away, we hear the growls as he changes into the leopard outside. And there is a story here from James Best, which I think he might slightly misremember, or there's another shot that we've never seen. Now Steve Rubin in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia gives us this quote from James Best concerning this scene. And he says, They had the panther on the roof, and I had to come out and light my pipe. And it's this part I'm not sure of because I don't actually see him light a pipe in the episode. And he goes on, And I see the trainer out in front of me, which the camera can't see, and he supposedly had control of this animal. So I come out and I hear the trainer say, don't move. And I thought, what the hell is he giving me directions for? He's not the director. Again, I hear, don't move. And I thought, holy poo poo. And I backed up and they said, cut. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, we don't have the animal fastened on well enough. And he likes to jump on somebody that's below him. I said, can you get a long chain and get on that animal? because I don't want to come out on that porch again. Lots of wildflowers around here. Saw a patch of old maid's fern up on the mountain. I noticed a lot of vixen wood around here myself. I just came from Billy Ben's. Fixed his breakfast for him. Well, I reckon that's no concern of mine. Circuit preacher's gonna marry us when he comes around next Sunday. I wish you happiness. For his sake. You still love him, Ellie? The last time I saw Billy Ben Turner's face, he was under a magic spell. And even the love I hold for him couldn't break it. Another really well-written scene, I think, from El Hamner. I love the verbal sparring between these two women and the actress who plays Ellie Glover is Laura Devon. Now she was a Chicago native born in 1931 and her birth name was Mary Lou Briley. And she majored in journalism and political science but always loved to perform as a background to her studies. And it was actually when she was singing on stage that she got spotted by a talent scout. And she trained hard for a year honing her acting and 
singing skills, and then made her screen debut in 1960 on a show called Insight. Now this Twilight Zone is actually her sixth credit, but she seemed to quite easily fit into this world. As with the other performers in this episode, she is very beautiful, and some say that this meant she only really got parts which featured her as set decoration. And if that's the case, then I think that's a real shame because she shows some genuine talent here. She infuses Ellie Glover with a purity and a goodness, but not a trace of naivety because she knows exactly what's going on here. She's beautiful, she's pure, but she's also smart. She knows what's going on before anyone. And while Laura's star was rising with parts in more and more prominent films, after her third marriage ended, she married the film composer Marie Jarre, the father of the French musician Jean-Michel Jarre, and she married Maurice in 1967, and after that, she quit acting for good. Now one of the products of that marriage was her son Kevin Jarre, who was a screenwriter for films like Rambo First Blood Part Two, Tombstone and The Mummy. So we never really heard anything from Laura, and then she passed away in 2007. What's the matter, Blue? You having a bad dream? Did something scare you? You're gonna be all right now. Just calm down, go back to sleep. You're gonna be all right. So with the leopard seemingly killed, the spell on Billy Ben is broken, and he and Ellie rekindle their relationship. Now I won't go beat for beat with this kind of third act of the story. I suppose in this conversation about whether season 4 episodes are too long, you could argue that this is the part of the story that maybe extends it beyond what it should have been. But I'll come back to that in a little bit. And in this section, Hamner brings in this part of witch folklore, shapeshifting. Once the leopard Jess Bell is killed, she becomes a parade of different creatures. Now at certain times in history, the legends of things like witches and werewolves seem to get quite muddled up and it's not completely clear where one ends and another begins at times. And as with most folklore, there are differences and similarities wherever you go. Now on the website Otherworldly Oracle, they give us a bit of history from the British Isles about shapeshifting and witches. And it goes like this. In the British Isles, there's much lore revolving around witches and animals. It's long been thought Witches had familiars, which were essentially spirits that took on animal forms like cats, dogs, goats, birds, 
toads, rodents, insects, and hares. They aided the witches' magic, but also inspired the witches' shifting rituals. In Scotland, witches often shapeshifted into the hare. The accused Scottish witch Isabel Gowdy admitted openly in court to her shapeshifting abilities. Her animal of choice was the hare. Well, you've got to tell me how to rid myself of Jezebel. I don't hardly know no way. Less than you kill her. You can't kill her? All she does is go up in a puff of smoke and then she comes right back again. Well, there's ways. Well, tell me. How are you going to pay me? Well, what do you want? A lock of your hair. You'll not trick me like that. Takes lots of money to learn how to kill a witch. You go home. Make a figure of Jess Bell. Then put on it clothes that Jess Bell has worn. Then, if you have the courage, stab it through the heart with silver. And in the end, Killer Witchy does, and he kills Jess Bell, and we assume that he and Ellie live happily ever after. In the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickry writes, another person much taken with Jess Bell was its director, Buzz Kulik, and he said, I loved it because I thought it was such a well-written piece. I always liked what Hamner did if he stayed in his own backyard. He had such a good ear for these people. They all rang true. And I think Buzz Kulik sums up in a couple of sentences what I generally feel about this episode. Hamner is sometimes given the status of the lesser Twilight Zone writer. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but when you get to the likes of black leather jackets, I can kind of see why that is the case. But as Buzz Kulik says, when he's in his own backyard, he's great. These people do feel genuine and credit where it's due, they got the perfect actors for every part. And while witches and shapeshifters might seem a bit far out to really apply to our real lives, you don't have to take much of a leap to be able to apply the relationships to something a bit more recognizable. Throughout this, despite all that happens, we never really lose our sympathy for Jess Bell. Hamner writes here and Anne Frances plays her like a victim. She's like an addict, someone who made a wrong decision after a traumatic event who ends up paying the price for that. At first, her decision to go to the witch really starts to weigh on her, but as time goes on, she gets more and more consumed by it. Her humanity and conscience and reason begin to slip away. She becomes unrecognizable, even to herself. So although you could say she does bad things, I don't really see her as the villain of this. She does invite the cosmic justice with her actions, because she goes to Granny Hart and she gets something that is really depriving Billy Ben of his freedom. And while it doesn't excuse her actions, she is this hurt woman, she's a woman who feels wronged. But she just makes a bad decision, 
and that just gets compounded as time goes on. She is like an addict, an addict who tries something to kill the pain of something that's happened to them and then they are enslaved by it. So I don't really see her as the villain, but what about Billy Ben? Well, he's potentially done some questionable things in the past by playing with Jess Bell's emotions. But again, we don't know the full details of that. Jess Bell gives us some details, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad guy. It means that maybe there is this disconnect between them about what they thought this relationship was. You could say he was immature, you could say maybe he was playing fast and loose with their feelings, but we don't know for sure where they were at that time. So I don't see Billy Ben as the villain either. Ellie Glover, now she's a good soul. She tends to just step back when she sees what's going on. She's kind of powerless in the face of all this. And it's only when she's really pushed by Jess Bell that she begins to start to be a bit more snarky back to her. So is Granny Hart the villain? Well, I wouldn't even put her as the villain either because basically they step into her world. She has her own space, her own domain, where she does what she does. And her rules are probably different than what we would call conventional rules. She has her own way of doing things. But Jess Bell and then subsequently Billy Ben make the decision to come into her world. She doesn't go out and do this to anyone else. So this all comes into personal responsibility. Granny Hart is doing what she does and it's Jess Bell who's made the decision to go to her. So I don't really see Granny Hart as the villain either. I suppose in the modern world with more modern sensibilities, there is the question around, you know, these two women fighting over Billy Ben, the dark-haired and troubled Jess Bell and the blonde-haired angelic Ellie Glover fighting over this man. And while I can see that point of view, I don't think it's one that I particularly hold because even despite the witchcraft, the characters feel real to me. And haven't we all known people who get into these relationships and have these kind of situations where, where they will break up and become so antagonistic towards each other to the point where you're like, what are you even involved in this anymore? Because all you are doing is spitting poison at each other. What do you expect the end game of this to be? I suppose what I will acknowledge is that early on in the episode, it does a good job of setting up Jess Bell as being understandably hurt and just making a bad decision. But when she is vanquished at the end, I don't think maybe it gives enough pause to saying, yes, Billy Ben and Ellie Glover might have won, but look at what's been lost. You know, a good woman who just made a bad decision because she was hurt. I don't think it gives enough pause to that. It's kind of a celebration at the end that they've got through this. So I think maybe that could have been handled a bit better, but I don't think it writes off the whole episode because of that. Now I said in the Death Ship episode that episode length is not a hard and fast rule of the Twilight Zone. For me, you just need a writer good enough to fill that space. And Earl Hamner was asked about this in Stuart Stanyard's book, and he was asked, Jess Bell was the only one-hour show you wrote for The Twilight Zone. Did the one-hour format give you opportunities that you didn't have in the half-hour form? And Hamner replies, 
I didn't think of it as giving me more opportunities. I did think that I could do a big story, something, not just an anecdote, because I think many of the half-hour shows were really kind of expanded anecdotes or short, short stories, whereas the hour episode was more akin to a novella or a long, short story. It gives you more scope or the opportunity to explore, not tangential things, but depth in a character or to develop more interesting effects, which we had a lot of in Jess Bell. And I think that's very valid. We look at something like the 30 Fathom Grave where where the divers going up and down, up and down. It's like these tangential parts of the story, whereas in this, Hamna takes that time to develop character. Now, I said at the beginning of the show that I would wait to dissect Sailing's opening narration until the end. And the reason is that this is the kind of episode that does raise some discussion as to how Twilight Zone-esque it actually is. Because we compare an episode like The Silence more to Alfred Hitchcock Presents because of the lack of supernatural elements. And where ghosts and witches are concerned in The Twilight Zone, we might say that an episode is more suited to Night Gallery than The Twilight Zone because it's not aliens or time travel. And I sometimes wonder whether we, the audience, put more thought into what constitutes a Twilight Zone than the makers of the show did at the time. But then there's this episode and this opening narration where Sailing says that the Twilight Zone has existed in many lands and in many times, and what might have happened in the time of the Druids is told as if it took place yesterday in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So this throws up all kinds of questions for me, because in a real-world sense, it was as if Rod Sailing was recognising that this was a bit of a departure for the show, so he was putting this explanation in there that the Twilight Zone at this time was like a filter for stories that could have happened hundreds of years ago, but it was because it was being told now that it was told in such a way as to be recognisable to current audiences through a 1960s lens. But in a non-real world sense, if we step into the fiction of the Twilight Zone, it suggests that the Twilight Zone is timeless and that it has existed for all time. So it's a rare case of hinting at a bigger mythology to the Twilight Zone beyond the current time or recent history like the Old West. So it's quite a fascinatingly unique open narration, and it is the only narration, because for a reason that I can't find documented, for the only time, there is no closing narration. Now Martin Grams Jr. does write in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that sometimes the writers would leave out writing narrations for sailing because he would write one himself. So I do wonder whether this is Sailing acknowledging that this is a bit of a departure for the Twilight Zone. So we did the opening narration and then just stepped aside to let the episode do its thing. Or is it just the case that they liked the song so much that they let that be the closer instead? I'm not too sure which it is, but what I do know is that although this is a bit of a departure for the Twilight Zone, 
I'd still either place it in the top tier or at the top of the middle tier. Because with a light touch, Hamnet expands on the scope of the show and does something different, but to me, it's still completely acceptable. He proves once again that running length is irrelevant when you just use that time well. There was a Dark was Jasper. Both they loved the same man, and both they loved him well. So that is Jess Bell. Bit of a long episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. I uh, I never really meant to increase the length of it, but I think there's a lot to get into with Jess Bell. Whether you like the episode or not, the kind of relationships is something that really interested me, and I wanted to dig into that a bit. But hopefully you enjoyed it. Now, a couple of bits of news. We are on the eve of Twilight Zone Season 2, the, the new show. And the question of how to approach that has been on my mind because it's all getting released in one go on the 25th of June. Now, I had hoped to get two or three episodes of the original show out before that. I might manage to, but I'm not too sure. Time has been against me of late. But there was this question in my head about, okay, you know, it's going to come out on the 25th of June. There's probably people who are going to have watched the whole thing, you know, by the by the weekend or by a, a week or by two weeks or even stretching it out. I would imagine there's a good amount of people who will have the whole thing watched within a month. Now, personally, I'm going to watch it quite quickly because I think headlines and Facebook and postings on the internet can be quite ruthless these days. And with the recent season of Doctor Who, I had things ruined for me uh, from headlines on websites, you know, not that I even clicked on them, but it was just there in front of your face as soon as you go on the internet. Now, because of doing this, I don't really have the luxury of uh, not looking at the internet for a period of weeks to stretch this out. So I'm actually going to watch it quite quickly. And I know a lot of people who are doing that. So the question in my head was always, well, do I want to stretch out this coverage over 10 weeks? Because by week 9 or 10, I would imagine most people will have watched them all. So what I've decided to do is this. Instead of doing 10 weekly episodes on the new Season 2 Twilight Zone, I'm going to do 5 weekly episodes, and within each of those episodes is a double bill. So the first one is going to be looking at Episodes 1 and 2, the second one 3 and 4, the third one 5 and 6, and so on. So it's not going to be 10 episodes, it's going to be 5, and that just kind of keeps it down, but it's also better for people who don't watch the new series because we'll be back to the original show quicker. Now, one of the great things last time was the listener participation. So as for how the mechanics of all that are going to work, I won't go into that right now. I will put an episode out before Twilight Zone Season 2 starts, and I will let you know time limits and how you can get that feedback in, and so on. But it sort of simplifies things and complicates things a bit. Uh, this whole thing dropping at once, but we'll get there, we'll get there. Now we have quite a full mailbag this episode, so before we get on to that, I just want to thank new patrons 
Scott Kaczynski, Ashley Kotarak, Janelle Overton, Elliot, Ben Hancock, and Kenneth Saw, my old friend Kenneth from Binghamton. So thank you for jumping on board the Patreon. And speaking of the Patreon, things are a bit different over there now. There's a bit of a new concept over there. And it's been rechristened the After Hours Club. Now, if you want to find out what the After Hours Club is, then go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone Podcast. And there is a recent post on there called Welcome to the After Hours Club. And if you want to find out more about it, then you can listen to that without signing up so you can check it out. And if you want to join the After Hours Club after hearing that, then you're very welcome to. And one of the things that I'll be doing over there going forward is asking the members to vote on what they think of an episode, whether it's top tier, mid tier or bottom tier. And the members voted on Jess Bell and it was quite a divisive one it seems. So so out of the After Hours Club members, 34% said it was a bottom tier episode, 49% said it was a mid tier episode and 17% said it was a top tier episode. So half the members in the middle there and then and then a good third of the members saying it was bottom tier and only 17% at the top. So interesting results, quite a divisive one. But anyway, that's enough from me. Let's go over to you, the listeners, for some feedback on season four of The Twilight Zone. Hi, Tom. Chad here with a few quick thoughts on Jess Bell. I was prompted to watch the episode the other day based on the Patreon survey. Um, I hadn't seen the episode, hadn't seen any of the season four episodes at all. So this one was totally new. Uh, As coincidence would have it, just last week I finished a book called Waking the Witch by Pam Grossman, which is an excellent book. Um... And so that this episode was sort of a witch witchcraft based episode was one of those twilight zoney coincidences that seemed to happen here and there. This episode was really unique in that I absolutely loved it and I absolutely hated it both at the same time. So it was really difficult to answer the survey as to whether this was top tier, mid tier or low tier, I think. Overall, it was top tier as far as the cinematography, the performances, the sets, uh, the fact that the episode, I couldn't look away from it. I, I really was drawn into the episode, and I really thought it was on the level with the old 30s universal horror films as far as the atmosphere, the creepiness, the performances were excellent. I mean, it, it was really one of the most well-done episodes uh definitely the best episode of season four as far as those aspects but the thing that really put me off was that the story was super simplistic you had the 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 good woman who had the blonde hair against the bad woman who had the dark hair and you know the the bad woman goes to witchcraft and you know witchcraft the the thing that bugs me about it is the twilight zone always has taken care to make the statement for the people who are oppressed and marginalized. You know, it's anti-fascist, it's anti-Holocaust, it's anti-racist, anti-lynching. But when it came to a story about women, the, the, the two women, their only purpose in life is to get the 
the attention of the man and to have him put a, you know, to, to marry them. That's their, their whole reason for being. There's not a whole lot of depth to them. The, the good, uh, character was just completely, uh, beyond reproach, had no flaws at all. The bad character, you felt empathy for her, but at the same time, she was just, you know, sort of totally bad the whole time. And then, you know, the use of turning her into a leopard, didn't make a lot of sense. Why would the witch want to turn her into a leopard? I guess it was something about, you know, you're giving me your soul because you can't afford to pay me, you know, and it's, it's as if just really problematic. And and the only real reason I think they turned her into a leopard was so that they could have the guy commit this heinous act of domestic violence and killing her and use the leopard as the proxy so that you didn't actually have to see uh, this murder. Um, and so the real history of witches in the actual world we live in is one of horrible persecution, you know, accusations, superstition, torture, all of these women throughout history have been burned to death, have been murdered and executed by monotheists. And, you know, witchcraft, interesting, is, is really about women's power and it's about nature and respect for those two things and so it really bothered me the way they did this this was kind of like a twilight zone episode that made the nazis into the good guys so i had a hard time getting past that but for every other aspect of a show it was top tier so this one was really unique and that i loved it and hated it and uh thanks for letting me send some thoughts in on it and i can't wait to hear uh can't wait to hear the episode Take care. Hello, Tom. Dave from Germany here. And I'd like to say a few words about Death Ship and about the next episode, Jezebel. Now, as for Death Ship, I think this might be in my top 10 Twilight Zone episodes. And I have to say, I just love a good ghost story. There are some things which we will probably never know for sure. And those are whether whether there's anything after life, after death, or if you really feel anything once you're dead, or if it's just the end of everything. I mean, I guess it's just hard to imagine nothing, just nothing i just can't wrap my head around it and this also goes for whenever someone close to me dies i just can't understand it i just can't wrap my head around it around them just ceasing to exist just baffles me i don't think i will ever really understand death i don't think any of us will ever understand death and i guess it's a certain fear of the unknown that makes all of these types of stories so chilling at least to me i don't know about you but i'm crept out every time and there is a certain profound type of sadness about mason always coming so close to reuniting with his wife and daughter but always getting pulled back forever and ever that i guess really speaks to me 
he's doomed to never get closure. Now, in conclusion, this episode is filled with moments like these. I guess this is what makes it one of my favorites. And a lesser TV show might just have made it a straight-up shock story. Now, um, as for Jezbel, I would like to share my thoughts on Mr. Earl Hamner. Now, people are rather split on Earl Hamner's qualities as a Twilight Zone writer. I don't think he was a bad writer. Maybe he wasn't even a bad fit for the show, I don't know. It's just that when he did stories that had a certain Ruru type of setting, he was great. Honestly, I love The Hound and Jezbel, but he also had a lot of bad stories, or just average. I mean, the only standout stories of his which took place in a more modern setting, although you can debate when exactly Jezebel and the Hunt are supposed to take place, uh, Ring-a-Ding-Girl and stop over in a quiet town, but also his only downright terrible stories for Twilight Zone, in my opinion, are You Drive and The Bewitching Pool. And I also even think you can clearly see why they wanted him on that show. Black Leather Jackets is just... It's not good, but it's not completely terrible. And a piano in the house has a certain charm to it. Well, that's all I really have to say, except that I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on The Bard, which I'm also really looking forward to, because I think that's the worst that the show has ever pulled, or Mr. Serling has ever pulled, but that's for another day. Um, keep doing what you're doing, stay healthy, bye. Hey Tom, this is Ian from Denton, Texas. Thanks so much for what you're doing with season four and everything you do. Um, it's been a lot of fun to listen to these um, podcasts. Coming in a little bit late, but I did want to talk about the episode Mute. Um, I think, I don't remember if it was written by Richard Matheson. Um, it wasn't Rod Sterling anyway. Um, whoever wrote it, I don't think they intended it for, for it to be construed like this, but uh, maybe they did. Um, but I was just, I just couldn't stop thinking of the boarding schools that um, settler colonial societies um, in what's now the United States and Canada and Australia forced uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous people into, um, where you know they take children, and because they don't understand how uh, their children are, um, you know how Indigenous people pass on education to their young, because they don't understand how. Um, language works and all that um, or or the traditional knowledge that these cultures hold they think that they're doing them a great dis, uh, great service by taking these children and um, forcing them into an education system that uh, you know that that traumatizes them humiliates them and I think of um, Ilsa I think her name was um, you know uh, that teacher telling um, the the parent the the, um, the sheriff and his wife that um, the fire was the best thing that ever happened to her or something like that. And I know she meant that, you know, it gives her a chance to get an education um, and all that, but it, it really just comes down to, um, you, you hear that same argument from settlers that, you know, anything that, that happens um, negative to indigenous people as a result of colonization is actually ultimately a good thing 
because what it allows them to do is get educated, get Christianized, get, you know, um, learn proper uh, language, whatever. We've heard all these arguments. Um, and so I, I just think of, um, you know, the whole time I was just, that was the reaction I had. I, I, you know, I just felt it like, um, you know, when, when she's being forced to stand up in front of the class and everybody is saying her name constantly and constantly. Um, that's it, just what I was reminded of. Um, so overall, I, I thought the episode was really, really good. And actually, I thought maybe that's kind of where they were going with it until the end. Um, the end, just the, the message all got wishy-washy to me and I had no idea what they were trying to say. But I also noticed the same trend when Cora gets so attached to Ilsa, even when, you know, the family that presumably is going to come pick her up, the the family from Germany, um, even when, when you know, with, faced with that, uh, she just she just wants to hold on to, to Ilsa, you know, regardless of whether um, that's what Ilsa wanted. And it just, it reminds me of how so many indigenous children um, have been adopted by, um, you know, settler families, by, uh, you know, European or white families, um, and they're raised in a way that's alien to their culture, and even, and there's a lot of court cases, especially I think in in Canada right now, of um, indigenous uh, families trying to fight to get their children back, Um, and these these families, these foster families or or whatever, um, you know, pushing to, to keep them and to continue raising them in this and in, in their traditions. I don't want to, you know, again, put political or any any sort of um, beliefs, you know, or any sort of messages that weren't there, but it's just what it brought up in me. So overall, I really did think it was a good episode, and I really look forward to hearing um, the... Well, your thoughts on the rest of the season, Tom, and all of the other listeners' thoughts on, on these episodes. And I hope I can leave something for, um, you know, this coming episodes and in season two of uh, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. Thanks so much. Hey, what's going on, Tom? Uh, just finishing up the podcast episode covering Mute. I'm really, really loving this conversation about whether or not mute is pro-conformity. I actually saw it as a liberation story for Ilsa. You know, she was a slave to this, to this experiment, uh, to her parents' will. And, you know, from the get-go, she's essentially stripped of her identity. She quite literally has no voice. And without that voice, she is trapped as a prisoner inside her own body and in her own mind. And I definitely see where people would take away uh, this idea that you have this other set of adults who are just trying to get Ilsa to conform to you know what they considered to be a normal way of uh, of life. But I I didn't really see it so much like that, especially with the teacher. I think uh, I think the harshness of the teacher stemmed from her own experiences, in which she understood more than anybody the importance of uh, breaking Ilsa of this pattern. So that Ilsa could have her own voice, not so not so that she could be like everybody else, but so that she could be herself. So she would have the canvas via verbal speech to be herself. 
and to express that self however she however she however she wished so i definitely thought it was less about you know saying okay ilsa you need to be normal like us and more so ilsa here are the tools that you need to be yourself and i thought it was really powerful especially uh in in the end in the climax of the episode where she finally does gain her voice and what does she say she says my name is Ilsa, you know, affirming that identity that she has now found and is able to uh, communicate with uh, the rest of the world. I think Rod's closing narration is perfect when he happily proclaims that Ilsa Nielsen is now a former resident of the Twilight Zone. And with that, I will just say thank you for the incredible work that you do on the podcast, Tom. Can't wait for the rest of season four. Take care. Hey, Tom and listeners, Zach Moore here with my feedback on the fourth, fifth, and sixth episodes of Twilight Zone Season 4. I guess I'll keep sending you my feedback in these three-episode batches, Tom, until I get caught up with you for your coverage of this season. But starting with He's Alive, what a timeless message, right? And that's the point of the episode. Unfortunately, evil is timeless. It has no has no time period. It has no location. It has no face. It goes... It goes, comes and goes, and you have to be on the lookout for it. And and that's why it's an important message. To the, and T- Rod Serling, at the end of the episode, puts it in his narration. It's one of those episodes where he says, hey, what we're talking about here is fictional, the story, but the message is real, and it exists outside the Twilight Zone. And you know, to, for him, and I, and I agree, this, these are some of his best opening and closing narrations You know, uh, uh, in He's Alive. And... You know, Dennis Hopper does a great job as the main character, Peter Vollmer. And it was surprising for me to hear that Rod Sterling wasn't the biggest fan of his performance here. I thought he was great. I think he held the whole episode together. So that, that was very interesting to hear in your coverage of the episode that Sterling wasn't the biggest fan of Hopper here. And uh, Peter Vollmer, the character, right? The guy's a contradiction, but I find that fascinating because I feel like there are a lot of people out there. I, I feel like, you know, as people, human beings are contradictory. So... Although on the surface, you're like, how could you think this or no, or, but also think that? And, you know, you have a guy whose father figure is a Holocaust survivor, but he's a neo-Nazi. I mean, that is an extreme, you know, uh, bridge to gap. And, and you know, even the character has trouble reconciling it. So I just felt like that was an extra layer of, you know, authenticity because, you know, everybody doesn't fit into these clean little boxes, right? And this is a character that certainly doesn't. And uh, that contradiction is interesting. Like how this guy found himself wrapped up in that kind of group uh, when he had, you know, the one good person in his life was the antithesis of that group. Uh, it would have been interesting to delve into that further. But again, that con- that contradictory nature of the character is it makes it more compelling. And obviously, he crosses lots of you know uh, points of no return as the episode goes and gets his comeuppance at the end. But when it comes to Hitler appearing in the episode, I feel like everything in the shadows is very effective. Uh, I mean, we know it's Hitler. I mean, Peter Vollmer should know it's Hitler, right? But once he steps out of the shadows, it kind of loses that ambiguity, that mystery. Um, so it, it, it loses something there, and I, and I wish they, they hadn't done that. It kept him maybe a voice. You, know, you, you see the big picture of Hitler. Maybe he hears a voice when he's talking to that. Or But then to see to see the guy who plays Hitler... You know, standing next to the picture of actual Hitler, is, it, it, there's a disconnect there, and uh, I think they could have executed that better. But, but all the stuff in the shadows is, is very effective, and you know, at the end too, just just gliding along to his next to his next victim, right? 
Uh, so, so a, a good episode of the Twilight Zone and uh, a timeless message once again. So, the next episode, the fifth episode, Mute. This is an episode I had never seen before. It was completely new to me, and I felt like there was a lot going on in this episode. There's a lot of there's some familiar faces. There's the guy from uh, Death's Head Revisited and uh, um, the Rip Van Winkle caper, uh, and also the the dad from uh, Walking Distance. I didn't I didn't know he was in another Twilight Zone. So it was only one one ticket per customer, Martin. I didn't expect to see that guy again. So interesting to see him playing another father here, the de facto adoptive father of the main character. And, you know, thinking about it, I guess there's not a lot of Twilight Zones that revolve around kids, uh, at least kids who aren't Billy Moomy, right? Uh, I mean, I thought the actress was fine. She didn't say anything, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I some, some of the stuff they did with her, like, reading minds was kind of odd. And I don't know. That could have been executed better, in my opinion. But uh, the emotional connection between her and the de facto adoptive mother was good, especially the, the fact that, you know, they they had lost a daughter and this girl was kind of filling that void for them and their lives. That that's a good story thread there. And I felt like, man, maybe they should have just focused in on that story thread instead of all these. We, we have a group of people in Germany who are training kids to be telepaths. And then, you know, you have a, a teacher who comes in now. I actually, I thought the teacher was probably the most interesting character. Cause I'm like, who, how does she fit into this? What's her deal? It's hard to kind of pin down her intentions. I mean, cause she's, She's kind of authoritarian, but also she is trying to help. And she had her own backstory about how I guess there's another group of people, or at least her father or parents, wanted her to do something similar about being a medium to talk to the dead. I don't think that's what the the group in Germany was doing. So I don't know. I thought she was an interesting character, and ends up just kind of being a side note. Although you you could I guess you could look at it like the the classroom experience of like what's your name, what's your name, what's your name. That plays into the end when she says you know my name is. And that is what convinces the other two uh, people from the experiment to just kind of leave her be in her new family as, as we have a nice, you know, exposition, you know, scene with them on the bus stop before the end. So I don't know. I just feel like there was a lot going on here and they could have like narrowed it down and focused on a couple things. But it, interesting to I mean, this episode is still fresh to me. Right. This is the first time I've seen it. So we'll see what I think about it next time it comes around in the rotation as far as the Twilight Zone goes. But um, the sixth episode, Death Ship. You know, if you ask people about the fourth season, this is usually the, one of those episodes that people say, oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're, hours, they're an hour long. Most of them are okay. But, but Death Ship, that's a good one. And, you know, I agree. I think this is one of the you know, the better episodes, one of the best episodes of the season. And Jack Klugman as the lead role, who doesn't love him seeing, uh, who doesn't love seeing him as the lead in a Twilight Zone episode. And uh, it was interesting to me to, to learn that the, uh, the original story would have fit a half hour time slot but because twilight zone was now in an hour time slot they padded it out with these um these afterlife sequences i guess would be the best way to describe them especially the scene where the the one officer he he meets his wife and child who you don't realize you know are dead and then you realize that they're dead and he's dead and this is a reunion it's a very emotional very powerful scene and for him to be ripped away from them by the uh, by the captain you know that's the whole point right the, the sheer force of will of this guy keeps them stuck in this loop and um as you said in your in your coverage of the episode you know they they keep suggesting these twilight zone possibilities oh maybe it's a maybe it's a time loop maybe it's aliens controlling us and and then to have it in the way it did i remember when i first saw it i was very confused just kind of hard resets to the beginning i was like wait did did they did the broadcast get messed up what happened no but it it just you know a simple but effective way to show you how time just repeats itself 
And uh, and yeah, that, that's a real classic um, kind of classic story there. Richard Matheson, you know, writing back to back episodes here, Mute and uh, Death Ship. And I, you know, I remember back in the um, what, what do you call this? Like the mid <laughs> mid two thousand, the like two thousand nine ten ish, right? I, I guess around the time you started the podcast, there was all this talk of a potential Twilight Zone movie with like Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be attached, perhaps playing the Rod Serling role because apparently he's a fan of the show. Obviously, that never came to be, and we have the uh, CBS All Access show now with Jordan Peele. But I remember they were discussing that, and they were saying they were going to take Death Ship and turn that into the movie and maybe add other elements into it. And uh, I don't know. I mean, they I don't know how far you could expand something like this. I, I think it works well here, and it's a short story. Um, but anyway, yeah, these individual episodes, I know that, you know, you mentioned they were talking about turning He's Alive into a, a movie as well. And I think, you know, that would have. That would have been interesting as well. I mean, I'm, if somebody wants to do that today, I say go for it. But uh, but yeah, that's just another fact of what I remember about about Death Ship. But uh, yeah, season four, you know, had some hits, had some misses so far, but uh, solid, pretty well, pretty 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 solid, I think. Only eighteen episodes compared to the uh, you know thirty or so, give or take, in the other seasons. So we'll see what the final tally is uh, so far. But yeah, these are two hits in the. You know, a near hit, I guess, for uh, for mute. It just, I don't know. It didn't feel like the Twilight Zone, but the uh, the other two definitely did, at least to me. So that's my feedback. Uh, keep up the great work, Tom, and talk to you soon. Rod Serling, creator of the Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show about any of the episodes we've discussed so far in season four. Then send your clip in any audio format to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com, keeping your clip to around five minutes or less. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what episode is coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, a most unusual program called Miniature. The very eminent Charles Beaumont takes us into a brand new realm of science fiction and fantasy that is at the same time intriguing and strangely believable. Uh, excuse me. Oh, yes, sir. I guess this may sound silly, but how do they manage that? How do they manage what? Uh, in there, in the glass case. Oh, <laughs> well, I couldn't say exactly. According to the museum officials, there was only one figure, the girl. Have you seen her? Is she all right? I, I've been worried sick. Be Thank you.